Before we begin, um, if you'd like to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I'd like to read verses 25 down through verse 30 and then pray with you and then we can begin. Matthew chapter 11 verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise You for this beautiful day that You've given us to meet out in this public place. Father, I praise You for Your Word, for the constant testimony of it, whereby You appeal to us as creatures made in Your image to come unto You. Father, I pray that You would bless our time now as we look into these Scriptures. I pray, O Father, that You would guard me from error, that You would close my mouth if I would misspeak at all. Father, I pray where I would speak truth, that You would empower me, that You would give grace from on high and bring salvation to lost and encouragement and edification to those who are Yours. Oh God, I pray that You would move among us for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Before we begin working through this text, some of you, at least from our church, are probably shocked to find me preaching out of the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John for the last, oh, three and a half years, I suppose, and we're going to continue through it. But I thought it prudent for us, meeting in this public place, this open context, not knowing who might be listening, who can hear us from their houses surrounding us, or even those who might walk by, or many of you who I don't know well at all, that many of you have professions of faith, and yet I wonder, based on the authority of Scripture, how many have been deceived into thinking they're saved when they're not. And so it seems prudent to me to preach a sermon here to us all on this clear message of Christ calling for us to come unto Him. And I want to be extremely transparent with you what my aim is in this sermon. God forbid that a single one of you would leave here today not knowing clearly what my goal and purpose is in standing before you. That you would understand. And I suppose in many ways, my aim today is really no different than any other Sunday that I stand up to preach. And it can be expressed in two primary ways. Here's the first one. There are many people who remain separated from Jesus Christ who are dead in their sins and will face the judgment and wrath of God when they die. Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. 
Many people will hear that verse and they may be inclined to think, yeah, the world out there is full of people who don't profess to have faith in Jesus. And the narrow, those who are few who enter the narrow gate, people think, well, that's talking about people who say, I'm a Christian. That's not at all the context of that verse. The context of that verse in Matthew 7 is in the context of people who profess faith in Jesus. There are few that enter that narrow gate. If you die in such a lost condition, you will face God's wrath against you. And I'm prepared to tell you now even that my love for every soul that is here compels me to warn you to flee from the wrath to come. But even more than that, that so long as you're separated from Christ, you are not fulfilling the purpose for which you were made. To glorify God. To demonstrate in the world the character and goodness of God. And so that is my first aim, that you would come to see and know God and glorify Him. The second is this. Coming to Jesus Christ does not end the day that you are saved. It begins. Jesus says, come unto Me. That's not a once for all thing that doesn't continue through your life. Yes, there is a point in a Christian's life when they've come to Jesus and they are surely saved from that point forward. But our coming to Him is to continue after that. And it is my prayer that everyone who already knows Him would enjoy the rest, the sweet rest that He promises those who are His. So if you're here today, whether you are one who is lost, we have many young people, many children. There's a text, many verses in our text today that talks to you as children. And God's command and call upon you if you're lost, or maybe you're doubtful and unsure. You don't know if you're really a Christian. Or perhaps you have every confidence that you are soundly saved that you know Christ, hear the Word of the Lord for you today. This will apply to us all. We'll begin in verse 25. Jesus says, it says at that time, Jesus declared, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The very first thing I want you to see, which is going to be throughout our text today, is the call for humility. The call for humility. Pride has no place in the kingdom of God. Notice what Jesus says. It's not the wise, it's not the learned or the arrogant or the self-confident who are going to understand the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He says it's children. And how fitting is it that we who would be here in a context in the very month that the world will tell us should be set aside to celebrate pride. Pride in sin, vanity, and rebellion to God. Jesus tells us all here today, this pride, this putrid, disgusting stench in God's nostrils has no place in His kingdom. It is for those who are as little children. It's for those who are humble and dependent. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who are poor in spirit, they don't have arrogance and pride. They don't look at the rest of the world and say, look at how good I am. They're those who are humbly cast upon God in every way. <coughs> the next thing we see is the Lord's peculiar interest in these little children. 
Little children, do you know that the heart of God revealed to you in this text is that He is interested in children and young ones? Now this text, this may be interpreted, this expression, little children, can be interpreted as a reference to those who are weak and immature even as adults. Those who are not progressed very far along in their understanding of God. And yet, the reference He makes here, the point is plain. That God's heart is toward those who are dependent and needy. Those who are in need of God to do for them what they cannot do. That's the very idea of one who's a little child. One who needs someone to do something for them. Consider from Matthew 18, verses 2-6. through It says, "...and calling to Him a child, He put Him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children..." you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. God's heart is towards children. If you're a child listening here today, God's telling you He's interested in you. And if you're an immature, unbelieving adult, God's telling you He's interested in those who are dependent on Him, who need Him to do everything for them. This is the text. This is the humility that's being called for. And I've already mentioned in passing today to you the state of the world and the time of year that we're living in when there's gross sexual immorality around us that is rampant. And it is fitting for people who would mislead young people and would tell them that they can be what they want to be and be a boy or a girl if they want to be, to have a millstone put around their neck and cast into the sea, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, to lead them away from truth. One of the most grievous things I've ever experienced as a preacher was in the open air. I was preaching in a very different context than this, in the middle of a pride parade in downtown Oklahoma City. And in that context, they had young elementary children dressed up in terribly wicked ways, marching down the road, dancing, carousing, and indoctrinating them with nothing but evil. Jesus says that ought not be. And the trouble with us is that we think the only distraction from Christ are gross expressions of immorality. When we, even as Christians, often subject our children to things that take them away from God, we drive them in a direction that's going to benefit them in a temporal way more than we do into the arms of the Savior. The next verse we see, verse 26, Jesus says, Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. The next thing in this text we see is a demonstration of the perfect union and agreement between the Father and the Son, which is expressed in Jesus' prayer here. Jesus' response to the Father's will was always a resounding Amen. Jesus says, it's been, it's been something pleasing to you, Father, to reveal to those who are like children, those who are not well-educated, not great in their understanding, those who need you to do something in them. Jesus says, yes, Father. It's good. It was pleasing in your sight. He says, Amen. And likewise, the Father was always in agreement with what Jesus said. On one occasion, the Father's voice thundered forth from heaven.
to Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is what He said, This is My beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The Father offers a hearty amen to all the Son has to say. And likewise, the Son says, Yes, Father. It is good, it is fitting, it is right. And I ask, my question is, do you and I find it difficult to agree with God? Do you find it difficult when you look at frowning providences or things that are not according to your purpose and plan to say, yes, Father, it was good according to you and what you have determined? The essence of all sin and rebellion is to disagree with God, to think that you know better than God. Most of the world today thinks that they know better to God. And I submit that we all need to hear once again, even as was thundered forth so long ago, listen to Him. Listen to the voice of the Son of God. He is the one we are to be submitted to. And the ruler of all that we think and do. It should not surprise you to find the New Testament telling you to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ that nothing should enter your mind without first asking, what does this mean before God in heaven? What does He require of me? What would He have me to do? And then we ask, in light of this union, this agreement, and the call upon us to see Him as the authority, what does He say? Verse 27, Jesus says, "...all things have been handed over to Me by My Father." And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Once again, this text. Don't you see the continuity in the verses here? Jesus has been talking about this agreement and union with the Father's purpose. And here we have that unity within the Godhead continuing to be demonstrated. And the special focus of this unity, notice this in your Bible. See, before Jesus was saying, it's the Father who's doing the revealing. It's been pleasing to the Father to reveal Himself to little children. And now we see here it is the Son who reveals the Father. They're one. They are one in this endeavor, in revealing God to those whom they choose to do so for. According to Jesus, it is absolutely impossible for anyone to know God unless God Himself chooses to reveal it to them. It's impossible to know God. You see how important this is? And the question you're going to have to ask yourself, and I'm not saying it's an easy question to answer, is that can you say amen when you read that no one is going to know the Father unless the Son chooses to reveal Him to them? Because I maintain in light of our failure and inability in dark minds. It ought to be a thing that produces joy and worship in you to hear the Son reveals the Father to people. And to sit in judgment and criticize the Father or the Son for being the one to sovereignly save whom He chooses. It's to say, I am going to be one who is wise and understanding and hold God into account for what I have determined to be right. That's not the case. It's a merciful grace of God to save those whom He will save. The pride of man hears that. The pride of you hears Jesus saying, it's the Son who chooses to reveal the Father. And you say, oh no, I can come to know God on my own. I don't need a supernatural divine work. 
for me to see God. I've got a brain, don't I? I can see the beauty of the world, can't I? The argument of the Scripture is there's evidence enough of God in the world to condemn you, but none to change your dark heart. None to change your desires to love the God who is evidenced in creation. And there are many people today who will spin their wheels building their own towers to heaven, just like in the days of Babel. You recall that narrative? God says, go forth into the earth after Noah gets off the ark. And they all group up and start building their tower. They're going to get to God themselves. They're going to work their way up based on their learning, their ingenuity, their building skills. God says, that's never going to happen. Dashes that tower to nothing and spreads them all over the earth. There are people today continuing in that same endeavor. But you cannot hope to reach the heights of heaven with anything that you can construct or build. Your mind cannot reach the heights of God as it is. What does this look like? Well, the atheists, the evolutionists, they build their tower and they will tell you we're not after God, but really they are. We're all worshipers. Their God may not go by the name Yahweh or Jesus Christ, but the God of science or the God of humanism, the God of of self-benefit. They're after that same God. And the towers that they build are made out of bricks with their own supposed knowledge and wisdom. The spiritists, the mystics, they build their towers with bricks that are made out of ignorance and self-focused meditation that closes yourself off to truth that must impact you from without. And unsaved religious people, lost religious people, build their towers to God with the bricks of their own self-righteousness. Their own ability to get there, they think, they suppose. And all of these towers are nothing more than prideful attempts to reach an imaginary God that doesn't even exist. And they're trying to do so by climbing on sandcastles. You can't get there. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who once said, to try to reach heaven on your own righteousness is like trying to climb there on a rope made out of sand. That's what I'm telling you. You must be humble and brought to the point of realizing how needful you are. The only way to reach the God of the Bible is through the Son of God revealing Him to you. Now here's my question. What does this very Son of God say to you today? Verse 28, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear? Almost as if Jesus is responding to man's prideful and exhausting and vain tower building. You're trying to build your tower up to God. Stop it. Come to Me. I'll give you rest from all that you're trying to do and your own strength and your own merit and your own ability. Stop it. Be still and know that I am God. That's the message He's saying. Come to Me. He directs our focus away from any and all labors of our own and unto Him alone. Here's my question for you. Are you at rest today? Are you resting? Can you say with any degree of honesty that your life 
is marked by a blissful ease and contentment? Or are you constantly faced with severe fatigue and desperate weariness in your soul? And my question as well is, why is it that we work as we do with very little experience of rest? Why was it necessary that Jesus say, come to me and I'll give you rest? Why don't we have rest? What's the cause of all this? Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Listen to this and see that our problem has been the same since the beginning. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Isn't that something? Every ounce of our anxiety-driven labors are a result of man's separation from God at the beginning. You want to know something? God charged Adam in the garden to work and keep the ground before the fall. Man is made to work. If you think Christianity is about escaping work, friend, you're wrong. Glory will not be about escaping work. It's the suffering, the sweat, the thorns, the blood of work that we will be delivered from. To work with pure joy unto God. But we see that the reason why we suffer so miserably as we labor is a result of man's sin in the beginning. And you know it's something. Our anxiety, our suffering, our desire to retire and escape all work, our longing for rest, these things are a testimony from God to your conscience of the certainty of the biblical record. Isn't that something? You know, atheists get tired too, don't they? They get weary when they work. They want to go on a vacation. They want to escape. Why is that? Because work is wearying. Work is hard. Labor brings you down. You deplete your strength. And you have a sense and longing to escape from it. And my question to you is, what exactly are we laboring for? In our text, Adam's told, you're going to by the sweat of your face eat bread. You're going to go out and work the field to produce food for your table. Before, God provided His food through a working in the garden and eating the fruit that was born from that labor, now you're going to go out into a cursed world, a fallen world, a suffering-filled world, and work. What are we laboring for? Some chase the American dream. Is that you? Do you suppose that your desire to be free from your labors, to have rest, do you think it's going to be from acquiring materialism, material gain? It will not. Some people chase the esteem of others. And some people chase a pursuit of their own self-worth, their own validation. You look at your life and you see all your failures. You see all the things that you suffer through and for. And you think to yourself, do I really matter at all? Is there anything about me that's worth anything? Constantly evaluating yourself and seeing failure, failure, failure. Striving to overcome that failure. 
so that you can look yourself in the mirror and smile and say that person's worth something. And some people are simply chasing financial stability in order to provide for those whom they love. You can take this down or turn to Matthew chapter 6 with me. Once again, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, He says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, just listen in light of this laboring, this toiling under the sun. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What am I telling you? That all the sense of anxious toil that we endure as we work is a testimony of the fact that we're separated from God. And if you're a Christian going through that kind of anxiety, realize you can trust your Father in heaven. You can trust Him to provide for you. And if you have this anxiety in your soul and you don't know God as Father, the message is to you that it's God's mercy to you that you're feeling that way. It's telling you something about the separation that you're feeling with God. If you were to but know Him as Father, the good Father who provides. Consider from Psalm 127 verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. Is that not an interesting idea in light of what Jesus is telling us today? Come unto Me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The psalmist tells you in that wonderful psalm, all your striving, all your working is vain. God gives His beloved sleep. All your anxious striving under the sun and all the unrest that you feel from your guilt-ridden soul needs to hear the Son of God saying to you today, Come unto Me! Come unto Me! You who are weary, you who are working, laboring, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest, He says. You are not going to find that rest anywhere else. He alone can give it. Now I know some of you, Good working men, hard working farmers providing for your family. You know this Bible of yours is full of scriptures that talk about the value of working hard, of reaping according to what you have sown. 
And lest we think that Jesus here is driving us towards a materialism, a primarily a material provision that causes us to forsake and neglect our responsibility in working, let us continue on to the next verse. Because if you hear me today telling you that if you come to Christ that the rest you'll find is that you'll no longer have to labor, you'll no longer have to work at all, that's not the message. The message of the rest He's calling you to is of a different sort. Verse 29, He says, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The only way we're going to properly understand this verse and what this rest means is for us to focus upon our souls. Jesus says you will find rest for your souls. What does the rest that Jesus is summoning you to to today have to do with your own soul? Get this picture. The reference Jesus makes here is to this yoke. Take my yoke upon you. What is this yoke? Well, you need to understand this yoke would have been like the harness that you put on an ox or a beast of burden to go work, to go plow the field, to go prepare it for harvest. And Jesus is saying there's this yoke, this laboring, this working, that you need to be off with your own yoke and put on my yoke. Now what does that mean for us? Well, it means that the primary rest that He's promising us has to do with our rigorous attempts to reach God by working ourselves, laboring. Consider from John chapter 6, Jesus has performed a wonderful miracle, feeding over 5,000 people. And they come and find Him another day later. And they say, do this again, feed us again. Take care of our physical need again, Jesus. And He says to them in verse 27 and following, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. What He's telling them, don't work for that food which is only going to provide for you physically here and now. Don't labor after that food that's not connected to your soul as it goes out into eternity. Work for that which endures to eternal life. For on Him... God the Father has set His seal. Now listen to their response. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? That's a fitting question. Jesus has just told them, work for the food that per- Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. They say, okay, what's the work we need to be doing for that eternal life? He answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The only work that leads to eternal life, that endures to eternal life, is believing in Jesus Christ. Every other work will burn up in the flame. It will not suffice. It will not get you there. This is the only one that can avail for you. And I'm suggesting to you the vast majority of our anxious toiling is for food that perishes. We labor, we sweat, we stress and we complain only to consume that which we earn on our passions and our lusts. When the temporary pleasures are gone, 
We're going to wake up and we're going to do it all over again until we die. And we wonder why people who reach old age are so bitter and frustrated because they've spent their whole lives working for that which perishes. And they're facing the end and maybe they've got this great retirement. Maybe they're completely debt free and they've got all these wonderful things and just a few short years to enjoy them. And then they go to the grave. Do not work for the food which perishes. What is it? That, what is the work, the yoke Jesus is talking about here, the rest He's talking about, has to do with your soul? Consider it this way. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And the world is blind to this reality. Men and women outside of Christ don't care about their souls. They think this is all there is here and now. Are you worried about your soul? That which will endure past this life. Jesus says, He's come to give rest of that sort. Is the prize of your eyes rooted in temporal pleasure or worldly gain? Unless you repent, you will forfeit your soul. You will step out into eternity with no ground beneath your feet. And you will have no answer to give to the God who sees and knows everything there is to know about you. He said, that's not very good news. Not if you remain in that condition, it's not. But glory to God, you're hearing a message that's telling you, you don't have to remain in that condition. You don't have to stay separated from God. Jesus says that He saves those whom He chooses to reveal the Father to. And now here today, God the Father through the Son, through this preacher by the Spirit is telling you, come unto Me. What a glory that God would be revealing to you His Son through this message today. I believe that He is. I know that He is. Come to Him. For us to be more concerned with our own soul than we are with the world, let me suggest to you, is only the beginning. Only the beginning. What do I mean? There are many people you will talk to in this town and in this world who will tell you they're concerned about their soul and they're taking steps to deal with their soul. My question is, where must we go once we've arrived at this proper conclusion that our souls are of immeasurable value? And that we need to know God in order to be saved. The question is, what must I do from there? Now that I'm no longer blindly going with my passions and lusts, but I'm awakened to the question, what of your soul? Where do you go from there? Where does Jesus go from there? There are surely countless Masses of people alive today. Maybe some of you who profess to be concerned about your soul. Who attend church services every single week. You offer prayers every day. You participate in religious activities. And yet on the last day you're going to hear, depart from me. I never knew you because none of those things will save you. Because none of those things are the work that Jesus says endures to eternal life. Having an interest in the state of your soul is not the end, it's the beginning. 
And the reason why they will hear and perhaps you will hear depart from me is because you have the same attitude as those Jews did in John 6 who ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? How can we access God ourselves through our own efforts? How can we build a tower to God? How can we get there? Do you realize how central the theme of humility is in these things? He's saying you've got to be like a child who can't do anything for themselves. You know, my children, they wake up in the morning and they come to my room and say, Daddy, I'm hungry. Feed me. They don't say, Dad, what do I need to do today so I can eat? They're dependent. And they know the character of their father and their mother who love them. Come like children who aren't earning anything. If your child feels like they need to earn their meal from you as a parent, you need to repent in sackcloth and ashes. There's an appropriate place for putting children to work. Believe me, ask my own. But it's not for food or for their life. That's born out of love. I'm reminded of a story my dad told me when I was probably two or three. He said he woke up one morning with me sitting on his chest with a screwdriver saying, Daddy, fix me some cereal. I'm hungry. Well, he did. I guess that screwdriver was pretty compelling. My point is this. We must be humbly looking to God as those who have nothing to offer for what He gives. Come and take, drink and eat without money and without price. He says to you, come as a child, utterly and completely dependent on the One who says, come. Here's my question to you. What is it that you need to hear about these works of God? What are the only works that will avail you is that you believe on the One who says, come. Believe on the One the Father has sent. Believe on Jesus Christ who said even the Son of Man came not to be served. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come for you to labor unto Him. He came to labor to serve for you and give Himself as a ransom for many. That's why He came. And those whom He's ransomed joyfully and gladly serve Him because He came and first has served us. Wonder of wonders that He would condescend to serve you and I. Now here, we begin to arrive at somewhat of an issue, somewhat of a, of a confusing truth. Here's my point. The Son of Man says, come unto Me. He says, whatever your strivings, whatever your pursuits, however weak you think you are, come to Me. My question is, what's the grounds for His invitation? Do you not know that Jesus Christ is perfectly just and righteous? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the God who cannot look upon sin. Jesus is the God who will not let sin go unpunished. How on earth can He say to you, come to Me? How on earth can Jesus Christ Look at you and say, I am gentle and lowly in heart. How can He be that way towards you, the sinner, the failure? How? What's the grounds for His compelling command to you today to come? How do you find a warm embrace from one who hates evil? He says in verse 30, For my yoke is easy, and my burden is is light. 
You need to know something here today. The yoke that Jesus is describing, again, remember, this is a reference to the harness that would be put on an animal to work, to go and accomplish something in a field. Farmers today, praise God, they don't have to do that anymore, don't they? Jesus is telling us something about work. He says, this yoke of His is easy, this burden is light, and the only way that can be possible is because Jesus Himself came into the world in order to work. He came into the world to accomplish something. He can offer a yoke to you because He's taken your yoke upon Him. All of the sin and all of the failure that is so evident in you and me that could not get us to God, those sandcastles. Jesus says, put that on me. I'll take that yoke on me. He says to you, let me give you my yoke. Let me transfer to you the righteousness that I have accomplished. Let me give to you all that I have come to do. And He has satisfied righteousness perfectly. Jesus is the Lamb of God that is without spot or blemish. And He looks at us and says, take my yoke. Receive my righteousness. Be clothed in a righteousness not your own. And have these pure white clothes draped over your head. So that when you stand before the Father, He says, you are indeed a child of Mine. One without spot or blemish. Come in. Come in. And then He takes all the filthy garments of your life. Your yoke, your bondage, your slavery on Himself. And He says, I'll go and I'll deal with these things. I'll go to the cross with your yoke on Him. And He dies under the wrath of God, bearing all of your filth, all of your grime, all of your vain worship, your empty pursuits, your sin and shame and every dirty speck which pollutes your soul. And He takes it on Himself to die under the wrath of God for you. He says, this is what I'm offering you. His yoke is easy because He's taken the awful yoke you could never bear. And He says, come to Me. In light of that, come to Me. Is there anyone else who can do that for you? There's no one on earth who can do that for you. How do we know? The last Scripture I consider with you is from Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. It says, "In you, all of you, this whole town, anyone who can hear My voice at this time, He says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses, no longer holding you into account for the yoke that you've earned, for the labor that you've produced. How so? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is how. Jesus can say to you with absolute confidence, come unto Me and I'll give you rest. 
His confidence is, I know what it took in order to purchase your rest. I know what it cost. And there's no work left required for you because of what He did. He's nailed your guilt to His cross and He's risen from the dead. His perfect life. It avails for you. So my final question and closing thought today is this. What cause have you for unrest in your soul? You know, I started by saying this applies to the lost as well as to the saved. How so? If you're lost, the wrath and fury of God awaits you. Jesus in grace and compassion and mercy says to you, come unto Me. To those who are already saved, Jesus says to you, continue coming unto Me. The One who died for you. The One whose righteousness is what avails for you. He says, continue coming to Me. To the Christian who's struggling in your growth in the Christian life, don't think for a moment that the good pleasure of your Father in heaven is dependent on your labors. It's the labors of your Savior. The Jesus who says, come to Me. Let your good works be born out of a knowledge of His perfect works. Let your striving be on the basis of His accomplishing. And know that. And if you're doubtful, how prone are we as Christians to say, I failed again. I've sinned again. I have not done what was pleasing in the sight of God. To say, well, I must be lost. There must not be hope for me. I must not be elect. Jesus doesn't say that to you. He says, come unto me. Come unto me. It's interesting the context of religious labor. Come unto Him. And you will indeed find rest for your soul. You'll be able to say with the hymn writer that there's this place of happy rest. Where did that come from? We sang there's this wellspring of the joy of living. I have peace and rest because of Him. I can trust Him. My prayer is that you would come to trust Him. That you would believe on Him. And hear me once again, children. Young people here right now. Jesus does not exclude you from this table. He does not say, only if you're an adult with perfect understanding do you come to Me. As a matter of fact, He tells your parents that if they don't become like you, they will not see the kingdom of God. If they don't become dependent, if they don't know what it means to come with nothing to offer and no way to attain it, but simply come and say, I know based on the character of the One who's bid me come that I can be here. Repent and believe this Gospel and rest in this Savior. Bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord our God, we praise You for every provision. Father, I thank You for Your mercy. Father, I pray that You would continue bid us come. Answer our burden and request for rest by pointing us to Your Savior, Your Son, yet again. O God, may You receive all the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.